Veteran religion journalist Bob Smithana is an award-winning reporter and Pulitzer grantee who has become one of the most respected and well-known religion reporters in the country. With the depth of knowledge that comes from decades focused on faith in our culture, Bob's got a comprehensive new book coming out on Tuesday titled Reorganized Religion, the Reshaping of the American Church and Why It Matters. And I'm happy it brings the author back to State of Belief Radio. Bob, thanks for being with us again. Oh, really great to be here. Listen, before we dive into the phenomena that you explore in your book, I want, I want to ask you about the dedication. Uh, who is Heidi Hall? Oh, Heidi Hall was a, a dear, dear friend of mine. She was a uh, award-winning journalist and a force of nature, a barn-burning journalist. She's also got a remarkable story. She was uh, a couple things about Heidi. She was about six foot three, redheaded, loud, and in charge, but also a very dear person. But she's a remarkable story. She was a Jehovah's Witness. Her mom had joined the Jehovah's Witnesses at a real crisis point in her life. Her mom's life was falling apart. The church saved her. And then uh, Heidi grew up and had some questions about the church. And um, because she had questions, she was uh, disfellowshipped. She was thrown out at um, 18. And at 18, she started, she didn't go to college, but she started working as a journalist and um made herself this career and she made it, you know, for a long time, she was uh, uninterested in organized religion, but she found religion later in life. She also found this community of people who've been thrown out of their church together, mostly LGBT folks. Um, So she had this wonderful journey and then she got cancer um, and she fought it. And then it came back. Uh, But she tells this great story uh, when she got uh, cancer, the doctor the first time the doc- she said to the doctor, well, I guess I got a couple of years to live. And the doctor said, no, you should prepare to live for as long as you did. And that's what she did. So she's uh, one of the most amazing people I've ever met. Well, I'm glad we can lift her up before we get into the substance of the book. Bob, from mega churches and mega churches to evangelicals and nuns, N-O-N-E-S, Christianity in this country has undergone enormous changes. When did this turmoil begin, and what did the changes you focus on accelerate? It really began post-1965. Um, well, let me step back. It's been a long time. So for the majority of the um, U.S. history, it's been mostly white, mostly Protestant country. So when I was born, 85% of people in the country were white. Most of those were Protestants. and But it's always been changing. So for a long time, you've had competing groups of Christians trying to tell each other what to do. You had Protestants and different kinds of Protestants. Then you had Catholics. Uh, I really started paying attention, though. uh, There's been a real change since I've been on the beat. I've been on the beat since 1999. When I started, the average congregation had 137 people. Today, they have 65 people, which is an enormous change in 20 years. And that's happened for a number of reasons. It's happened because people are less interested in... um, organized religion in general and institutions. It's happened because of changing demographics. It's happened because of scandals. It's happened because of political polarization. Um, One of the things we've seen is that those, the world that those congregations were built for, which is mostly white, mostly Protestant, doesn't exist anymore. We live in a more pluralistic, diverse uh, country 
where people are, have no religion or people of different religions and Protestants are all kind of peers now. And that's a big change. Um, I noticed it in particular a few years ago. I had been covering um, uh, disaster relief. And if you know anything about disaster relief in this country, it's almost much of the volunteer work is done by religious groups, Jews and Mormons and secular people and Methodists and Baptists. So I'd gone to one of these big events where there's a hurricane. All these people from different faith groups are cleaning up. Then I come back and I read another story about the nuns, which are the rise of people with no religion. And I think, wait, I just came from a place where there were mostly older white folks and religious folks doing all this work for their neighbors and regardless who their neighbors are. And now I realize they're all going to die off. And when they die off, they'll be gone. And who's going to take their place? Very interesting. You know, there's a there's a clear tension between religion, which is inherently interested in consistency, and the evolving society that we, we live in, which is constantly changing. Religion can do the work to change society, or it can try to do the work to preserve society. During the time you write about, does one approach come out on top more often than the other? No, they're in tension with each other. It's the really interesting thing. Um, there is one, one problem right now for religious groups is they have, they have what uh, one sociologist called the Hamlet problem. They're used to being the star of the show. They're used to be religious leaders are used to being telling their congregations the way they should believe and shaping and leading the organization. They're used to having some level of respect in society. They're used to having um, some of the values of the country in line with their own. And all of a sudden now that's different. They've been displaced from that. They realize they're not the star of the show. They're bit players and the drama's going on around them. And they're kind of doing one of those two things. Some of them are saying we have to adapt. And how do we, um, you know, both retain our vitality and be an asset to our community? And some are saying, no, we don't want to adapt. We want to actually resist that. So that's one of the tensions we see right now. We have folks who want to retain their place in society as leaders and want to say that society should shape and be shaped by their values, even though people are not. And so they want by... Um, force or by power or by elections, what they used to get by um, voluntarily. Interesting. You, be, you began and, and have continued talking about the relative homogeneity of organized religion in post-war America, and that played a central role for, for most Americans. Even a lot of folks who never went to church were very comfortable in a culture that was dominated by people who looked and thought the same way that they did in white American Protestantism. So do you think that growing diversity in America has helped make American Christianity, as we remember it, more attractive to people in those groups, even if it's, in some cases, mostly nostalgia? It's That's a very interesting question. It is, um, there's two ways to answer that. So one reason why America remains as Christian as it is, is because of diversity if there were not large numbers of immigrants, most of whom are Christian, Hispanic immigrants, for example, most of whom are Catholic, the country's uh, level of religious engagement would go down. We'd have more nuns because most of the nuns, at least in the 
the disaffiliated folks from religion right now are white. At the same time, it's there's a real tension between the way that white Christians in particular and Christians of color, black and Hispanic, see the world around them. The folks who are white and Christian, if you ask them, for example, Michael Emerson, who's a sociologist at the University of uh, Illinois at Chicago, who's written a lot about race and religion, would ask, do we have a race problem? And what problems with race in America? All the white Christians would say, no, everything's great. All the everyone else would say, no, it's not quite that way. So you have um, congregations that need to become more diverse. So most congregations, there's about one in four congregations that are now considered multi-ethnic, which is important because you can no longer build sustainable congregations on mostly white Christians. But when new people come in, they bring in new ideas. And that brings tension because they have the same beliefs, but not the same way of um, views of social uh, the society, about politics. And so those things are intention. So you uh, have both uh, a need to bring in people who are diverse and this kind of growing tension that the diverse folks are going to say, now, wait, everything is not as great as you think it is. And what happens when they say that is there's a real uh, sense of hurt or backlash against that. And, and is this something that is, that is inevitable um, as diversity has accelerated in our culture or is there a way out of, out of it? It's the good question. That's the question of what do people choose? So religious groups have always adapted to new places and new times and new cultures. We see them all over the world. So the question is, what will people choose? Will they choose to say we're in a new place and we have different sorts of folks and how do we best express the values of our society or of our beliefs, excuse me, how do we best express the values of our belief in this place in this time? Or will they say, no, we really want to make sure that our group is in charge. And I saw this most um, powerfully, actually early in my career as a religion reporter. This is back in 2008. I covered our the recovery from a tornado and a mosque burning on the same day. Hmm. So there's a tornado in, uh, on um, Super Tuesday in 2008. In, in Tennessee, it kills about 30 people, knocks over the most of the small town. So a few days later, I go up to the small town of Lafayette, Tennessee. I see all these people, again, faith-based people doing all kinds of great things. They're feeding people. They're cutting down trees. They're cleaning up. They're helping people sift through the rubble of their lives. This really kind of wonderful um, social engagement and, and help when there's a crisis. Finish the story, drive home. I get a call. You have to go to Columbia, Tennessee. It's an hour south of Nashville. The mosque was burned down. And there the mosque has been burned to the ground. And it on the uh, on the concrete foundation are the words, white power, we run the world. And I think, oh, there's an image. Like that has been has stuck with me for a long time of the way that religion can work. It can be there's a crisis, we run and help our neighbors. It can be we, this is a religion, these are people we don't want, we're going to, and these were white nationalists that did this. But in Nashville, that mosque burning, in the years following it, there was a huge anti-Muslim movement, which is mostly very powerful mm -hmm. white Christian folks who didn't want Muslims around. So you have this kind of tension. What will they choose? Do they want to choose to help their neighbor or do we want to choose a place that uh, only is interested in, where religious people are only interested in their own influence and power? So, Bob, we often see signs that a relentless focus on culture war issues on the part of some religious denominations uh, 
have have been a driving force behind disaffection and disaffiliation, especially among younger people. We've had a lot of guests on this show talking about that, as you know. From the perspective of the big picture, which you address in your book, is that true? It is and it isn't. So most people who disaffiliate, disaffiliate because they, they don't believe anymore, the tenets. But that's a complicated thing because in um, religion, sociologists talk about three things, belief, belonging, behavior, three things. And they're linked. So sometimes people believe more than they, be- they belong to a group. They don't believe everything. Sometimes they um, believe everything, but they don't belong to somewhere. And the, and the behavior has to do with like the rituals and the coming together. But increasingly, there is a kind of uh, purification going on, especially among Protestant groups, where uh, it's transactional. If you believe, we love you, if you believe every single thing we believe. And if you doubt one thing, then you're out. Uh, and that has grown as, to, as folks try to purify their version of whatever the faith is. And so there is, there's some of that. There's a, there's a, one of the folks I talked to basically said, it's hard to go to church with people who think you're the devil. Or another one said, they don't love me anymore. Hmm. And that, that's, that's related to this. I, they loved me until I said, wait a second. Um, so there is that kind of, um, culture war things. There's also the, the very interesting thing that, um, in older congregations, for example. So, so if you look at the country's demographics, um, a lot of the older mainline con- congregations, for example, they, uh, they stopped having children or as many children. And those children don't come to, to church. Or if they do come, they come later. So there's also been kind of a birth rate um, change. And that it used to be the idea that liberal congregations would shrink and conservative congregations would grow. There was a, this was a long-held kind of tenet. And it turns out that everyone is shrinking, mm-hmm. uh, in part because they don't have as many kids and those kids don't go to church. So you really have, um, and the kids who do go to church are kids from diverse backgrounds. Very interesting. I, you know, I, I, I wonder, are non-Christian religious people surrogates for the internal struggles of Christianity in America? When you say you can't belong here if you don't believe everything we believe— um, has has the attention turned to people who are not Christians and who therefore, by definition, don't believe what we believe? There's some of that. There's certainly a, there's certainly an idea that uh, this this idea of Christian nationalism that in order to be American you have to be Christian. What's really interesting is just this past week I was at a group called Interfaith America. You may be aware of them. Used to be Interfaith by, Youth Corps. Used to be Interfaith Youth Corps. I'm with all these young people. They're some were Christian, they're Hindu, they're Muslim, they're pagan, they're all kinds of different. They're Jains, they're Sikhs. They really believe in America. They really believe that all people are created equal. They believe that there's a place for them. They believe in the idea of America. So there is a real, there's some real hopefulness out there. Um, that goes back to the beginning of the kind of aspirations of what the country is going to be. But there is this kind of um, idea that if, if you're not one of us, you're against us. But you also have this kind of other tension. I'm very, the book may has made me hopeful because people, even people who think that, right? So even the people who think that, for example, uh, you know, who are kind of Christian nationalists, they also support all kinds of organizations that help everyone. They have this kind of dual thinking, right? They don't all, 
think this all at the same time. We have a lot of chatter on social media. We have a lot of political chatter. And then we have like, how do people act day to day? So I'm, I'm more hopeful about how people act day to day. And there are lots of um, examples of people from different kinds of faith groups getting along and working together. But it depends. Do they want to choose that? Do they want to see that person as someone who is equally a part of the culture? And can we build something together? And do you think that uh, that the American tradition, the American legal status of freedom of religion will will improve as a result of this majority minority culture that believes in America? Or are we still going to struggle with that? We're always going to struggle with it because we have this kind of great tension between no having no established religion and uh, a robust free exercise. And we're going to see lots more of that. So I'm a religion reporter. So I, you know, I'm a First Amendment fundamentalist, as you might <laughs> say, right? I, you know, freedom of the press is extraordinarily important. Freedom of religion is really important. And having no established church is really important. So we're going to have more tensions about this. The great part about this is we have decades and decades of and centuries of practice of figuring out how different religious folks, folks can coexist. And can and what are the circumstances in which um, you have religious people have to follow generally applicable laws? What, what when can you make accommodations? When you can't make accommodations? So there are all kinds of ways to do this. Um, I kind of the bigger worry for me is actually that organized religion will actually decline to a point that we miss it. So one of the questions. Um, that I got from Ibu Patel from Interfaith America that I use as well is what would happen if all the religious groups in your community disappear? Who will run the shelters? Who will run the food pantries? Who will host AA meetings? Who will be there when people die to host funerals and weddings and all the kinds of things that the social capital of these groups do? And my more concern is that religious groups will just disappear. So if the average congregation was 137 people and now it's 65, if 65 people is hardly enough people to keep things going, if that goes to 30 in 20 years, then all these groups may just disappear. You you actually speculate on future scenarios for the American church in your book. Can you can you mention a few of those? Yeah, so one of them, we are probably going to see a lot of congregations close. Um, you're going to see more diverse congregations. I've seen... Um, some really wonderful things or really interesting th things happens. One of the most uh, well-known congregations in America a few years ago was a church called Mars Hill. Mm -hmm. Very big, you know, Christ very aggressive Christianity, muscular Christianity, manly Christianity, mm. in-your-face Christianity uh, with a pastor named uh, Mark Driscoll. They were going to take over, you know, Seattle. And in 2007, they started kind of crumbling. Even though they're at their height, they start firing people pastors and the church really only had a few more years before it imploded completely right across the the uh channel from them in seattle it's this little church called interfaith bay covenant church very small older white folks they're hosting uh they rent space to a young kind of up-and-coming multicultural church they are dying too but they know it and they say wait that our congregation is not going to have a future here. These new folks are reaching our community. They have a future. We're going to give our building and ourselves to them. They join that church. Their church disappears. Now it becomes a church called Quest Church. So when Mars Hill closes, guess who buys their building? 
Quest Church. And guess who the first person to preach in there is the woman, Asian-American woman pastor of Quest Church. It's the first woman to preach in that space. And they have a kind of thriving congregation. And they are planning more churches like that. So you can have that. You may have churches that close. You may have churches that are going to be in conflict that say, um, so right right now, and if you look at the, the conflict, what, what happens in a crisis is this. People either say we're going to fix it or they turn each other. And we see this. If you look what's happening in the United Methodist Church, what are they doing? They're fighting over human sexuality. But they're fighting as that church is sort of slowly imploding. So they may end up fighting and be done with fighting, and there's nothing left for them. Southern Baptists, another, they're big, you know, giant. They're fighting over race and politics. What's going to happen when they're done with fighting? Will there be anything left? And all kinds of other groups are in those kind of moments of um what are we going to, you know, we're fighting over really important issues. LGBT inclusion, very important. Race, very important. The kind of set of politics of the country, important issues. But if they, folks turn on each other and fight each other so much, the whole thing falls apart, then what was the point? Yikes. So I have one last question for you, and we're running a little short of time, so I, I can't give you as much time on this as I'd like, but uh, a book-length project like you wrote uh, with Reorganized Religion can bring unique insights and unique headaches. When you think about writing your book, what are one or two things that you learned or discovered you didn't imagine you were going to learn going in? Oh, I learned something about my mother, huh. which I did not expect. I did learn this. And so one reason I, I wrote some personal things in the book because I figured I can't tell other people that they should care about organized religion unless I kind of lay my cards on the table. But I discovered a number of things about my mom, which I did not know. And here's one of them. So my mom in 1950s, uh, I'll make this short, is uh, she's a child of uh, immigrants, very poor family. They've got very little money. She's a very good student, but can't go to college. She's going to go be a mill worker in Fall River, Massachusetts. If you know anything about I do. textile industry in yep. New England, it's gone now. Yep. But she could have been a mill worker, except at the last minute, her high school guidance counselor says there's a scholarship at St. Luke's Hospital, which has a nursing school. Would you like to go there? Because you qualify. She gets a scholarship, changes the course of her life. She becomes a nurse, professional, really blossoms as a person, becomes has a wonderful impact on her life. So turn, I always thought that was a Catholic hospital. It's, it's in New England. New Bedford is a Catholic area. No, it's an Episcopal hospital. Started by Episcopalians, Episcopal Sunday School in the 1800s says, hey, we need a hospital. They start uh, they start a hospital. They start a nursing school. Do you think those 1800 Episcopalians really were excited about Catholics? No. Were they thinking, I want to help the children of Catholic immigrants go to school and have a better life? No. But they did. They built this thing, and years later, it impacts my mom's life in a completely unexpected way. And I think that's the thing that stuck with me is that so many of our lives are affected by religious institutions and, and organizations started by religion that, um, that we had nothing to do with. Hmm. They were started by people <laughs> decades ago, and they were for our benefit. So what will people do now that will be for the benefit of people in the future? Imagine if she had had a scholarship from Mount Sinai Hospital. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she could have had that, right? She could have right. had she could have Mount Sinai. She could have all kinds of other... People who started this, the, I, this is if I was excited at the end of things, 
it's that um, so many, we have religious tension. We have lots of problems and they're not going away. And people, what they decide right now will make enormous difference in the future. And we also have this long history of people, religious groups, starting institutions that were not just for themselves, but they were for the whole community, right? We don't have, it's some, we have some religious groups that just let their own people in, but very few. Most of mm-hmm. our institutions say, we're going to build this thing and you can come be part of it because we think it's important. So I'm, I'm hopeful because of that. I don't think that's going to go away. It's a great message. Bob Smetana is an award-winning journalist and Pulitzer grantee whose work has included time as news editor at Christianity Today and who today serves as the national reporter at Religion News Service. His new book is titled Reorganized Religion, The Reshaping of the American Church and Why It Matters, which is out on Tuesday, August 30th. Bob, thanks so much for being back today with us on State of Belief Radio. Really glad to have been here.